you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. This podcast is sponsored by Mass Mutual. Every way we look out for the ones we love is an act of mutuality. Mass Mutual can help with the financial ones. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. If you're one of the few people who 100% completely understand the current state of the Affordable Care Act, this Queer Money episode is not for you. For the rest of us, you'll be happy to know that we invited Policy Genius to come back onto our show to explain everything we need to know about the Affordable Care Act to ensure we get the health care we need and to make any adjustments we need when open enrollment starts November 1st, 2018. Today we host Miles Ma, Managing Editor of Policy Genius Magazine, who educates us on the Affordable Care Act as it stands today in 2018 going into 2019, and he also shares insights on a brand new study Policy Genius just released yesterday. Today's Queer Money is brought to you by the Debt Free Guys 7-Day Debt Freedom Challenge, and you can accept that challenge at DebtFreeGuys.com. Finally, if you like this or any other episode of Queer Money, please share Queer Money with one or two people in your life today. Thank you, and let's get started. So welcome, Miles Mott, Queer Money. We appreciate having you. Sure. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we had Jennifer Fitzgerald on Queer Money, geez, maybe about two, two years, years ago, ago now, and she mm-hmm. came on to talk about the initial understanding of the Affordable Care Act that obviously created a lot of contention in the country. And we now have a president and um, a lot of policyholders who are doing their best to to change it as rapidly as they can. And I think that there's a lot of confusion about the Affordable Care Act. What's changed? What's not changed? What are the features and benefits? And what are some of the current drawbacks? So we've invited uh, Policy Genius back onto the podcast to help explain some of those concerns right before open enrollment takes place so that maybe you're better educated before you start uh, ticking off the boxes of what kind of coverage you're looking for. And it just so happens that Policy Genius recently did a survey about people's understanding of the Affordable Care Act and what uh, education and information uh, needs to be spread. So we're happy to help spread that information. So to get things started, Miles, what changes have occurred with the Affordable Care Act since it became law? So the biggest thing since uh, the Affordable Care Act became law is that millions of people have health insurance who didn't before. And it's not just because of the individual markets that everyone knows about um, and that we're talking about that are opening in November. Some of the biggest changes the law made was um, it allowed states to expand Medicaid to um, all low-income people, which not every state is taking advantage of, but it's made a big impact in the states that have. Throughout the country, it allowed parents to cover their children who are under 26 years old. Um, That's something that my family is taking advantage of. Um, and I know many other young adults have. It required insurance plans to cover pre-existing conditions. And there are many holes in the law, you could argue. But the biggest difference between now and when the law passed is that a lot more people have health care than did before. Gotcha. Then obviously, that's a good thing. What changes have occurred since President Trump took office? Any? <laughs> uh, yeah, you could say that. Um, <laughs> so probably the biggest change that's taking effect next year and will affect people enrolling in the law this year is that one of the least popular parts of the Affordable Care Act was something called the individual mandate. 
that required pretty much everyone, with some exceptions in the country, to have health insurance, or else you would pay a tax penalty when you when you did your taxes in April, and that penalty is now gone. So there's essentially the individual mandate is still on the books, but it's totally toothless. So essentially, you you don't have to have health insurance anymore. Um, so that may convince many people to drop health insurance, which could raise prices for everyone who still wants to be insured. Um, and the other thing, and this was happening under President Obama as well, but premiums have increased rapidly um, under President Trump, um, in part because he has many times threatened to repeal the law and, and change some of the regulations under it. Um, and that uncertainty is not good for insurers. They're already trying to predict the future in terms of how much healthcare are people going to use. So in response to not knowing what's going to happen, many of them have, have raised premiums by quite a bit. Got you. So healthcare is expensive, more expensive than it was on the individual markets. Got you. So just to be clear, the individual mandate will be obsolete starting in 2019. Yeah. So so people signing up this year, those plans, they, they don't have to basically, or, or they won't face any penalty. Got you. And so correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't the idea or part of the reason with the individual mandate was that that would help fund more of the healthier people and their premiums would help fund uh, some of the coverage for people who were maybe needing more healthcare attention? Right. So ideally, you have a healthy marketplace. So the more healthy people you have in your pool of people who are getting insured, the more people are paying into the system and those people are also cheaper to cover because they don't get sick as much and they sort of subsidize like it's the way basically all insurance works the people who don't use it fund the people who do use it because it's it's sort of a break in case of emergency sort of thing mm -hmm. you're not necessarily going to use it but because you've all pooled your money you won't be screwed if something bad happens to you um and if more healthy people leave the market then the remaining pool is filled with sicker, more expensive people. So, and that leads to premiums going up. Right. So, so isn't the idea there in general that it was, in many cases, young individuals who weren't insuring themselves, those individuals would be, and typically are healthier, those individuals would then be paying into the system for individuals who may be sicker or older. I mean, the reality is, is that at some point in our lives, we all need health insurance, right? As we age, right. things happen to our body and we have to take care of ourselves. We're going to eventually need some forms of health care. And the idea is that as a young person, you're paying it forward to the needs that you'll have in the future. And now this whole idea of the individual mandate not being required or that there's no longer a penalty for it, we may see some of the young, healthier individuals say, oh, I don't need health care. I take care of myself just fine. And so they're leaving the pool and not paying in, paying it forward, so to speak. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. So my, my old boss, Alex, saw it as like you're not only paying to cover yourself, but you're paying to make sure that all the people around you are, are healthy. So they're, now there's no incentive to do that other than altruism, I guess, but it's, it's sort of an expensive price to pay for some people. Right. So then wouldn't you expect, I mean, we're already having problems with premiums being more expensive than they originally started out when the ACA passed. So shouldn't we see premiums going up even more? 
Yeah, that's what's been happening over the past couple of years with um, the uncertainty surrounding the law. Um, actually, this year, they haven't gone up by as much as people have expected. So maybe insurers have come to anticipate all the chaos surrounding the law, but um, we're still a couple of weeks out. And as we've seen with everything that happens in Washington, uh, anything can happen at any time and <laughs> insurers may have to adjust right. still. Responding to every tweet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So do you see any potential impacts or maybe specifics that may be uh, impacting our community, the LGBT community, I think maybe especially trans individuals? I, I don't know if there's anything specific to LGBT or trans people. It's already difficult for trans people to get health insurance, and I think it's still going to be tricky. Um, I think um, if you're a trans person who's looking for a health insurance policy, you have to really read the policy carefully and ask questions of your provider. You should be looking for a policy that specifically says it covers the services you need, whether that's gender reassignment surgery, hormone therapy, mental health counseling, or, or whatever your, your specific needs are, you need to be asking about and looking for those services in the policy. The best thing to do is probably to get your hands on an evidence of coverage or certificates of coverage. These are documents that say that they're going to cover these specific things that you need. Right. Um, but basically, yeah, it's, it was hard and it's still going to be difficult yes. or, or tricky at least. So it sounds like, especially for, for trans individuals or those in our community who have elevated healthcare needs, it's important to not just shop for the cheapest form of healthcare coverage because it may not cover the things that you specifically need. And in that case, you're just wasting money because you're going to eventually have to take care of those needs out of your own pocket. So you might as well look for the coverage that covers your specific needs. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, if you're paying a lot of money, you should know what you're paying for. It's, it's something you, you really have to take the time and, and dig into what you're buying exactly. So I guess one of mine and David's biggest concerns, especially with trans people, are those who are actually in transition and uh, who are transitioning and they're taking the appropriate medications and they're having the appropriate operations and the sequence and the timing that they're supposed to. Um, if all of a sudden everything becomes more expensive or if the coverage for trans people goes away while they're mid-transition, what recourse, if any, would they then eventually have? Any idea? That's a tough one. Um, if you're going through that process, going into open enrollment, I would say keep in mind that your your health plan goes until the end of the year, not until open enrollment. Um, but if you're going to be on the border, make sure you're in close communication with your provider about where the money will come from, be in close communication with your insurer. Um, and as you're shopping for your next plan, like I said, make sure you're scrutinizing exactly what's in there. But yeah, that's that's a really tough one. Gotcha. So just a kind of, Miles, an, an outside question here. I know that you just mentioned that we're coming up to open enrollment time period, and we have to shop every year for our plans. And it seems like every year at this time of the year, we hear these stories about well, this state is going from having nine plans down to two, and you may may live in this particular city in this state, and your plans have changed. Is there any kind of recourse that someone may have if they have a plan and they've already started a process, whether it's transition or some other healthcare need, that kind of that pre-existing 
condition or health need that they can they can do something about all of a sudden having to switch to a plan that now doesn't cover their needs? Yeah, um, not always. And I think it would be kind of difficult, but that's another reason why you have to make sure that you're talking to the people on both sides, your, your old insurer, your new insurer, your, your current provider about um, and, and tell them ahead of time about any possible gaps in payment. Um, but if you're insurer you know just drops out of the market there's unfortunately not a whole lot you can do one positive thing is that this year it seems like that's happening less i, I think and i'm not 100 percent um, certain on this but I, I believe this is the first year in a while that the number of providers is actually increasing overall so uh, hopefully the market has stabilized to the point where that doesn't happen to people but yeah i i think just Keeping your lines of communication open is probably your best option in that case. So a lot of LGBT people uh, rely on government subsidies for their health care. What risk are there to those subsidies in the coming year? So there's nothing on the horizon at this point um, that could affect those subsidies. They were really crucial last year because President Trump stopped making payments for one kind of subsidy called um, cost-sharing reductions. It just so happened that another kind of subsidy gave people tax credits if they couldn't afford health care um, only increased as a result. It seems like those those premium tax credits are still going to be around. So as of now, there's if you qualify for a subsidy, you're still probably good to go. But like I said before, we're still a couple weeks out and anything can happen in Washington. Right. Yeah, so keep paying attention. <laughs> um, yeah, subsidies, those still exist. They helped a lot of people get health care for you know, nothing or very cheap last year. And as of now, that's still the case. Right. So, Miles, we did ask a couple or get a couple of questions from individuals in our Queer Money Facebook group. And I don't know if, if this question you may have some anecdotal evidence from the survey that you've conducted, but when it comes to income, how does that impact the subsidies that someone may get when applying for or looking for shopping for healthcare insurance? So the income that you use when you're trying to figure out whether you're going to get subsidies is your adjusted gross income, which is basically the IRS term for the money you make minus any deduction. So it's it's basically what you calculate on your tax return, but they ask you to make any adjustments for next year. So it's whatever your most recent tax return says your income was, plus any expected adjustments for next year. So if you plan to get a raise, you have to tell them that. If, not if you plan to. If you're expecting to get a raise or you're expecting a drop in income, you have to tell them that. And, and that's what you use. That's what you punch in when you're um, calculating whether you get those subsidies. Right. So it's important here when you're when you're thinking about this whole idea of inputting this information to actually go back to your last year's tax return. Don't just assume that because you make $50,000 or you're paid $50,000 a year by your employer or that's how much money you earn per year, that that's the amount of money you would be putting into your application when you're applying for these. For many of us, our adjusted gross income is significantly lower than the amount of money that we quote unquote tell people we make. So that could have a major impact on how much you end up paying for healthcare insurance. Right. You would 
count all those deductions that you would on your taxes, like any IRA contributions, student loan interest, charitable deductions, um, anything that anything you would deduct will lower your adjusted gross income and um, possibly increase your chances of getting a bigger subsidy gotcha. if you need one. Well, you just stole my next question. <laughs> well, that's great because it was another question from somebody from the Crew Money Facebook group. So, so that oh, okay. that helps. So, I'll follow up on a, a topic we kind of briefly discovered towards the beginning. You know, year over year, we, it seems we have seen an increase in the cost of healthcare since ACA passed. Sometimes even in double digits. Can you maybe high level and layman's terms, so I understand it, explain why is that and what can be done for it to stop, and will we ever stop it? Yeah, so the reason the Affordable Care Act passed in the first place is because healthcare costs are very high in America and they keep going up. And I think that kind of gets lost in the discussion over the ACA. I think when people talk about the price of healthcare, they're often talking about the price of health insurance. And, and that's the figure that gets in the news when you see premiums going up. That's the cost of health insurance. But what drives that is that healthcare itself like the cost of providing healthcare is very expensive. It's a huge and growing part of the economy. I think it's like one sixth or one fifth of the economy. And that's just not sustainable for us to be spending that much on it and for it to keep growing. It's at the rate it's going, it's going to eat the whole economy unless we find a way to address why it's so expensive. There's a lot of reasons that somebody smarter than me could probably tell you as to why our healthcare is so much more expensive than other people. It may, it probably does have to do with our health insurance system, but it requires huge fixes and it's just hard to get traction for huge fixes on anything in Washington right now. So arresting that increase, uh, it's going to be very difficult. Gotcha. I think on a personal note, just I think many of us, uh, especially John and I recently have having visited several other countries that just the perception of health in overall health of state of individuals in the United States compared to many other countries, we deal with higher levels of diabetes, higher levels of heart disease. There are so many different habits that we have as Americans that may be different than the rest of the world and could be the reason why our healthcare costs are so much higher. So if you're, if you're thinking on a personal level, is there something you can do to help keep healthcare costs down? Maybe look at your habits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think a big driver of why, one big driver of why it's so expensive is, is those chronic conditions you talked about, like obesity, diabetes. We don't treat those things until they become a catastrophe. Um, and it may be cheaper to nip those things in the bud before they become serious problems. Um, and it seems like our healthcare system, the way it is, is not set up to, to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. So another question from the Queer Money Group, someone asked is, should they really consider buying a high deductible healthcare plan? And if so, when is that appropriate? This is a great question because I think people are scared of high deductible health plans because it's different from what we expect of a normal health insurance plan where you pay a bunch of money and then you don't pay a bunch of money when something happens to you. It's sort of reverse. You don't pay that much money and then you, sh you shoulder the burden when something bad happens to you. So I actually wrote about this earlier this year, how to compare a high deductible health plan against perhaps a more traditional health plan. You have to do a little math. So you take the premiums of the plans that you're looking at. So that's the minimum level that you're going to pay your annual premium, right? So if nothing happens to you, you're at the very least, you're going to pay your premium. 
In most cases, a high deductible health plan, you're going to pay a much lower premium. So your minimum level of expense is much lower than a typical health plan. But that's if nothing happens to you. So if you're worried about a catastrophic year, take that premium and add the max out-of-pocket cost. So that number is the maximum, the most you can expect, expect to spend on healthcare in a given year. Like if you have three heart attacks and four babies. Um, well, I think you'd have three heart attacks if you had four babies in a year. <laughs> yeah. So, so you take, you add those two numbers together. And if your HDHP has the lowest number, it's probably the best option because even in a worst case scenario, you'll be spending less than if you have that worst case scenario. And if you're still worried about the difference, you can take that savings so the savings between the HDHP and the traditional health plan. And one thing that an HDHP gives you the option to do is invest that money, is to put money in an HSA. And that money is money you can hang on to for life. You can retire on it if you're super healthy. So any savings you make from having a high deductible health plan, if you're still worried about the risk of getting sick, you can invest any savings you have in this pool of money that you can use just in case. And that's sort of the way that I thought about it when I was picking a health plan this year, and I never really had. Got you. So there's a bit of a strategy that people should use um, if they're considering going with a high deductible health care plan. And it sounds like you wrote an article about this, so we'll be sure to include that article in our show notes so people can read it with a fine-tooth comb and, and try to understand it better. Yeah, it's probably a little difficult for me to explain <laughs> the adding <laughs> no over problem. a podcast. Yep. Yeah, you, you started spouting out a bunch of numbers. You lost me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually is a great segue to another question from the Queer Money Group. Someone recently just started a HSA plan themselves in 2018. Should they hold on to it for future or is there anything they should do with it now? Um, I think it's a pretty smart idea to hang on to it because it's – tax-free to put money in there. Um, and if you hold on to it long enough, um, if you reach retirement age and you still have money in that HSA, you can use it for anything. In the interim, you can use it for any medical expenses tax-free. But once you reach retirement age, you can take money out of it tax-free as well. So it's sort of a backdoor retirement vehicle. I'm not a financial advisor, I should say. So you might want to talk to your financial advisor or accountant about what the best option is for your HSA. But um, I, I think that's becoming a that's why HSAs are becoming a popular option because if you can use them in case you have a medical emergency or any medical expenses tax free, um, and if you happen to live a long and healthy life, you can uh, have some extra money in retirement. Yeah, actually, that that's something that. Uh... One of my colleagues and I discussed, I think it was in 2016 or 2017 when, when all this was happening, that it really can, an HSA can be an additional way of saving for, for money for retirement. And a recent study from CNBC showed that individuals who are retiring right now are expected to spend about $280,000 in healthcare costs over the rest of their lives. So the more money you can have for healthcare or for retirement in general, uh, it it's a great way for you to protect yourself or be prepared for those later years in life. Yeah, I think that's that's something that a lot of people discount when they're retirement planning is is the amount that they'll spend on medical expenses, um, and this is a, a one way of one good way of addressing that. Right. You know, I think it kind of does drive home this point we were talking about earlier. We know that as we age, we 
need more health care. And we have an aging population in the United States right now, especially with the, the, the huge number of baby boomers who are retiring and, and individuals who are now in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. So it kind of makes sense why we're seeing some of the increases in health care costs. But when we're talking about insurance for our community especially, um, it seems like there's always this question about PrEP and why it's so expensive, why so few health care or insurance plans cover PrEP. Do you have any thoughts on why that's the case? Yeah. So you guys know that PrEP has been around a few years now um, as a preventative against catching HIV, that it it's only been a few years. It might seem like longer, but insurance time is much slower than regular time. So um, <laughs> I, I, I think it's just a case that they've been kind of slow to adjust to this new use of PrEP. So a couple of them still treat it as a sign that you're involved in risky sexual behavior that might let you catch HIV when in fact it's a way of reducing your risk from sexual behavior. I think what I would say, and I'm sure it's what you guys would say, is that um, times are changing, but one way you can make time change a little faster is if you get a negative result from your insurer, challenge them and uh, if you don't get covered because that's being vocal is one way that they can realize that this is a concern for the LGBT community. Yeah, that's actually great advice. We just interviewed Sa'el from Simply Insurance yesterday. That episode will air for a couple of weeks from now. But that's what he talked about. The PrEP is still kind of new to the insurance industry. Obviously, a lot of gay men know about it um, because there's a benefit for us to, to, to take it. Um, but it's up to us. It's our responsibility to make sure health and life insurance companies are familiar with PrEP and that it doesn't necessarily mean um, we're, that we're all just being sexually promiscuous. You know, it's just an added protection. And there are a number of reasons why you would take PrEP even beyond if you are sexually active. And that's part of what we need to educate these insurance companies about as well. Here's a quick word from our sponsor. If, like us, you're getting to a time in your life when you're starting to think about the financial ways of protecting your loved ones, MassMutual is there to help. Now let's get back to the show. So uh, Policy Genius just recently released a study. Do you have any results from that study that would be applicable to, to this topic and our audience? Yeah, so we have for the past couple of years um, done a survey ahead of open enrollment just to see what people's knowledge was um, going into that process. We just got the results of that survey back and what we found was that uh, awareness is pretty low, kind of distressingly so. Uh, so some of the results we got back are that 25% of people think Obamacare was repealed in 2018, uh, even though that's what the president says all the time it's not actually the case. Um, the law has undergone changes, but it's still the law, and you can still get it uh, this November. Um, another sort of distressing result was that we asked people when open enrollment is for the federal health insurance marketplace. It's November 1 to December 15. If you're using the federal marketplace, um, only about 21% of people got that right. So a lot of people don't know when they're supposed to buy um, an Obamacare plan. And I, I think you saw evidence of this last year when like right toward the end of the deadline, you saw people basically swarm healthcare.gov mm -hmm. and the hotlines and 
went down for a little bit. People had to leave messages to make sure that they got healthcare on time. Um, so we may face another situation like that this year where, where people all of a sudden realize, oh my God, I only have a couple of days to sign up for healthcare and the website gets swamped. We learned that many people don't even know what Obamacare plans cover. So Obamacare plans are all guaranteed to cover what are called essential health benefits. This is basic things that every health insurance plan has to cover under Obamacare, like hospitalization, maternity care, um, ambulatory services. Um, only about 20% of people were able to name all the things that it's supposed to cover, and 28% um, of people think it covers none of those things, which you know, leads you to think, like, if, if it doesn't cover any of those things, what do people think Obamacare even does? So a lot of the results we got back just seem to indicate that literacy around Obamacare and health insurance in general is quite low, which is uh, sort of worrying, you know, three weeks out from open enrollment. Right. So, Miles, just to, on that topic there, this whole significant amount of confusion around how much things cost, what the, what is covered, uh, that it still is in existence. Do you think that a lot of that is simply the fact that there are so many options out there? There's so much information that people are just overloaded and have kind of, in a sense, shut down, which may be to their detriment when it comes to understanding this topic? Yeah, I think health insurance in general is already difficult to understand. Um, and because the Affordable Care Act is such a controversial political issue and there's so much noise around it um, and there's so much conflicting information, that only makes what what is a very, very important decision more difficult, that there's so much noise surrounding it. Um, so, you know, podcasts like yours, our website, we have to sort of amplify the true things about um, signing up for health insurance so people can make the best choice for themselves because it's it's a really hard choice. Even for, for me, I have a regular job with regular open enrollment. Um, there's Congress doesn't talk about my health insurance plan, not usually anyway, and it's still a really hard choice. I, I can't imagine trying to make that choice with all this noise around it. Exactly. So to our audience, if uh, you're hearing this podcast, now is the time to start thinking about and educating yourself on Obamacare. And starting November 1st, 2018, is when you start want to want to start making changes uh, as appropriate for your situation to go into effect the beginning of next year, not waiting until 20, uh, December 15th. But to follow up on everything you just said there, I would also argue that Fox News and MSNBC and CNN and standard political blogs are not your resources to go to to understand the Affordable Care Act. However, I'll throw that to Miles. Where should people go to really understand the ins and outs of and get facts, not um, bloviations about Obamacare? Honestly, if it were me, I would go straight to the source. The healthcare.gov is where you sign up for the Affordable Care Act in most places uh, for most people. Um, and they Despite uh, the administration change, that's still a website filled with, you know, up-to-date and accurate information about signing up for healthcare. Not to self-promote, but we're we're also planning to cover the heck out of the Affordable Care Act, and I'm going to try to give everyone the most accurate and helpful information I can. Um, so I would also go to Policy Genius, and I'm sure you guys have uh, plenty of accurate information about the Affordable Care Act too. But 
go straight to the source. Go to healthcare.gov is probably the, the first stop because you have to go there anyway. All right. So, Miles, jumping back to, I, th- I think it's okay to do a little self-promotion here because we understand what services your website offers. Maybe explain what it is when someone goes to the Policy Genius website, what kind of information they can find. Clearly, we understand that you have some written content, but what other mm-hmm. kind of ways can they help understand about uh, their options? So, you can actually buy health insurance through Policy Genius. Uh, we sell... Basically, every sort of insurance product you would want, including health insurance. Um, so if you go to our website, you'll see health is one of the options on the homepage. You click on it, you put in your zip code, and then it'll ask you for a bunch of informa- other information, and it spits out um, some of the policies that work for you. Um, I just did it the other day uh, just to see what it was like, and it's pretty easy. So that's one way you can look for healthcare is, is through our site. Great. So- thank you. And then as well as providing a great resource of information for people to educate themselves about um, health insurance um, and being an avenue for people to get health insurance, what other products and services, if any, does Policy Genius offer that can help our audience? Yeah. So um, we provide all manner of financial protection products. So you can buy life insurance, disability insurance. Renter's insurance, pet insurance, uh, auto insurance, homeowner's insurance, all sorts of financial protection products on Policy Genius. And it's not just um, a marketplace. We have all of, uh, we have a ton of great content surrounding it to make it very easy for you. Uh, we understand that it's a super complicated and not fun thing to have to buy. Uh, so we try to make it as painless as possible. And we, we, hold your hand and do a lot of the work for you. And we try to make it fun. (laughs) (laughs) As best you can, right? (laughs) If you can believe it. (laughs) Yeah, I I will say uh, I personally have gone through the website several times in testing it uh, when we first came in contact with Policy Genius. And the way basically the site is set up is that you will go through and you will click on buttons to give them some information about who you are. And then they provide you with a listing of of the various types of insurance that you may need, rather than you having to go through, uh, sit there and comb through hundreds of potential insurers, they're going to refine it down to your state, your needs as an individual, your needs as a, a family. They refine all that down and make it simple. That's the benefit of living in the age of technology that we have today, that you, the the resources that we have can make making decisions easier. Not easy, but easier. <laughs> <laughs> Caveat. <laughs> right. So right. just it's to like, reiterate. Like, you know how things are annoying? We try to make it not that. Yes. Not annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so just to reiterate, uh, November 1st, 2018 is the start of open enrollment. Open enrollment ends December 15th, 2018. So start thinking about any changes and educating yourself on the ACA now and start implementing those changes that you want to have go into effect 2019 starting November 1st. Miles, to kind of wrap up, any last thoughts on what our listeners can do to make the whole process and understanding Affordable Care Act easier? Um, Read Policy Genius. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say that if you happen to... If you're planning to be on vacation from November 1 to December 15, um, your own state may have a longer open enrollment period. Um, so it's it's very much a state-by-state state thing. 
If you happen to live in a state that runs its own exchange like New York or California, you may have more time. There are also instances where if you do miss the deadline, you may have a special enrollment period if you happen to get married or have a child or something. But my best advice is just do it by December 15 and if even way before that. Start thinking about it right now, like you said. Um, if you need information on helping make this decision, we have a lot of resources on policy genius. We have a state-by-state -state guide to open enrollment. Um, so wherever you live, you will find pertinent advice on our website um, about uh, what premiums you can expect, which providers there are. But really, bottom line, just start thinking about this right now as as soon as you're done listening to this podcast if, if you need health insurance. Right. And I think that's kind of the point, a last point I would drive home to is uh, we would love to say that Debt Free Guys and the Queer Money Podcast are the resources for everything you need financially. We certainly can't cover everything. And so Miles and Policy Genius have a wealth of information. Uh, we've pulled information from their website and linked to them before in our content. So definitely a resource that we trust and we think you should too. Well, Miles, thank you for coming on to Queer Money. We appreciate having you and for um, helping us better understand um, Obamacare Act, the Affordable Care Act, and um, how we can help our audience and listeners be better prepared coming 2019. Sure thing. Hope I was helpful. And thank you guys so much for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you, Miles and Policy Genius, for helping us better understand the Affordable Care Act and how upcoming changes will affect us. To our listeners, if you have more questions about the Affordable Care Act and its effects on you, please visit PolicyGenius.com. Please also remember that open enrollment starts November 1st, 2018 and ends December 15th, 2018. Don't wait until the last minute to educate yourself and make necessary changes. Also, don't forget, today's Queer Money was brought to you by the Debt-Free Guys 7-Day Debt Freedom Challenge, and you can accept that challenge at DebtFreeGuys.com. Finally, if you like this episode of Queer Money, Please help us get Queer Money into more people's ears. Please share Queer Money with one or two people in your life today. Thank you, and we'll talk with you next week. To learn more about our sponsor, MassMutual, or to find an advisor, visit MassMutual.com. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.